Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Last time we talked about the resurrection of Christ and the significance of Christ's resurrection, that truly if Christ is not raised, there's no hope. I mean, Christ is the one who secures us to a resurrection of life. We talked about the intermediate state I remember this is where uh, when we die, our souls begin to taste either bliss or torment, whatever the Lord may have for us, and we ultimately wait for our body to be raised from the dead or raised from the grave in our resurrection body where our bodies and souls are once again joined together and we enter into the heavenly bliss of our God. And so we, we asserted uh, the significance of Christ's resurrection and now the catechism's laying out the significance of Christ's resurrection. Uh, normally, uh, we can think of the resurrection only being a future benefit, and it, it is. I mean, there's obviously no getting around that reality. I mean, if Christ isn't raised from the dead and we're not raised, then there's really no purpose in meeting together. Uh, but this resurrection isn't just future. It's also, as the catechism's laying out, something that impacts us right now in our current present life, uh, and if we deny this resurrection or Christ's resurrection, we have a serious problem. We have no redemption. And so, if we know that we are redeemed to eternal life, for life everlasting, we're called to live in heaven, uh, this is our ultimate destiny, how do we know that we're going to enter into this life everlasting, right? I mean, this is a valid question. Uh, it could be a great surprise, or maybe at the resurrection we find out whether we made the cut or not, uh, but that's not really all that motivating or assuring if we go through life right now. And so how do we fundamentally know? And so I decided to basically summarize this. Uh, when, when we put the points together, it's just a sentence. I am righteous, second, only by faith, and third, in Jesus Christ. And that's really what this Lord's Day is just trying to nail home. That I am righteous only by faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's begin by I am righteous. Now, question 59 is basically dealing with the substance of this. You know, you can think about this in the context of the Reformation. People are, have died. People have been uh, martyred. Uh, there's been a lot of bloodshed, a lot of wrongs on, on both sides, if, if you really read the history. And so one can wonder, what was the point of this whole Reformation? What was it really necessary? And so that's really what question answer 59 is addressing, isn't it? You know, how does this benefit us? In other words, what was the point of this? Why are we going through all this hassle? And this question is, is a rather important question, because we're getting at the essence of whether or not the work of Christ is really necessary and really beneficial. Uh, if we don't really understand the work of Christ, or we rest in ourselves and we don't see uh, the graciousness of God, that really leads us 
to two different positions that we can fall into. On the one hand, we can grow so discouraged, so discouraged in our Christian walk that we may not want to push forward. What's the point? I'm never going to dig myself out of this. I'm in such despair. There's no hope. When you understand you have Christ, you understand you have hope. The second place where we can go is maybe if we're doing well in our Christian walk, or at least in terms of our perspective, we may become so self-righteous that we think, well, I'm better than everyone else, and I'm really in a place where I've done enough, where I've earned glory. Obviously, that's a problematic place. We see the Pharisees sending Christ to the cross, which is basically where they are, saying, we don't need Christ. We don't want this Christ. He's, he's useless. And that's a pretty dangerous thing when you really start meditating on that concept of saying that Christ is useless. And that's what the catechism is getting at, that we have to understand that Christ is his great equalizer in the Christian life. Yes, all humans are created in the image of God. We, we affirm that of all mankind. We also know that as we are redeemed in Christ, it's not because of a worthiness in us. We are redeemed by the grace of God. And that's what we always need to have impressed upon us. We are redeemed by the grace of God. We're not worthy of redemption. We're not worthy of heaven. But we've been made worthy of these things because of Christ. And this is where I thought Romans 4 is very helpful as he's setting the groundwork basically for Romans 5, dealing with the two Adam scheme. But right here in chapter 4, he's addressing, you know, a question that a lot of people ask. Were the saints of the old covenant saved by a different means than the saints of the new covenant, right? Was Abraham saved by a different methodology than we are? Is he looking to the same Christ or, you know, or, or are we looking to a different Christ? How does this fit together? So the Apostle Paul, in going to Abraham, most likely, again, maybe the same congregation that received Hebrews, I, I don't know, but it's possible, and, and a group of people really wrestling with, is this Christ the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise? Is, is this Christ something else? How do we put this together? And this is where in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul is, is laying out the significance of who Christ is and what Abraham looked forward to. When we look at this, we know that as Paul lays this out and who Abraham is, you can think, well, it's a sign of circumcision. It's a genealogy. But Romans 4, 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul makes very clear. Abraham is the one who has the blessing of, of redemption prior to circumcision. So it's not circumcision that, that gives or confers or blesses us with the work of Christ. It's not the act of circumcision. It's actually believing in Christ that makes us right. Now the Apostle Paul, in setting the stage for Romans 4, 10, 11, kind of building to our first conclusion in this section or this argument, he begins with the elephant in the room. In Romans 4, verse 1, where he wants us to, to wrestle with how is Abraham secured? Is it by his works? Is it by his faith? And, and he draws a contrast in verses 2 and 4, laying out the implications of this. Because if it's by the flesh or by his works, well, then there's nothing gracious about receiving heaven, is it? Uh, this would be Christ, John 17, I've completed the work you gave me to do, therefore give me the glory. In other words, Christ is saying, 
I've completed my side of the bargain. I've obeyed. I've fulfilled. I deserve resurrection, right? And so if it's by works, we can come into the presence of God, say, hey, I've done the good things you've required of me. Therefore, I need to be declared righteous. So the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, if it's by works, then Abraham's merited it. And if he's earned it, well, as he says in verse 4, well, then, you know, the wages are just paid. And so now he's drawing the implication of, of a wage earner, right? You do your day's job, you work your 8, 10, 12, whatever hours you've agreed to. At the end of that time, you're going to get paid a certain amount for your time, for your hours. You go to your boss, say, I fulfilled the, the hours. You said this is a payment. You're not out of line in saying, pay me my wage, right? You've earned it. You deserve it. So the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, if Abraham did this by works, there's really nothing gracious. He has a right to come before God and say, you owe this to me. I'm one who has earned this right. But the Apostle Paul wants us to go back to Genesis 15. And he wants us to think back to this, uh, this uh, graciousness of God. It's not by works, because he goes in verse 5 now to build this argument that it's not by work, but it's counted to him as righteousness. So he's citing here, or at least making a reference to the second part of Genesis 15, verse 6, uh, where Abraham believed and accounted to him as righteousness. Now, when you have Abram's Amen, an, an article that was written back in, already back in 1980s, um, that goes through this, it's a rather profound statement. Abram says a, a verbal Amen, I will live my life in light of the promise. So again, it's not living any way you want, but Amen. You will secure me in the heavenly kingdom. You will do this. You will take away my sin, and I will order my life in light of this. Now, that's counted to him as righteousness. Is Abraham doing this by his covenant faithfulness? No, Paul's emphasizing he's doing this as one who has been redeemed, living out of gratitude in light of this promise. He's not meriting. He's not adding to the work of Christ. He is one who is truly believing in the promise that God has made. So as Abraham is one who is righteous, cited here, Romans 4 verse 5, citing Genesis 15, verse 6, the Apostle Paul is saying, okay, we can agree. Based on Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham's looking to the same messianic king that we look to, same Christ. This is the same Christ that's going to make him righteous. He's not looking to another Christ. He's not securing his way into heaven through another means, only in Christ. So now how do we take hold of Christ, right? We've said it before. Calvin, book three, as long as Christ remains out of us, outside of us, he's of no benefit to us. So Christ could perform his work perfectly, but if Christ is on the plane of heaven, we're on the plane of earth, and there's no way to take hold of Christ, well, then our lives are useless. I mean, again, our, our redemption is futile. There, there's no hope. And this is where we get to question answer 60, where it gives the assurance, not only what is the purpose of knowing this, that you know, I know I'm redeemed. I know that it's in Christ I have life. But now question answer 60 is saying, well, let's start talking about the implications of what the Reformation teaches of being justified by faith alone. And so what does that mean? Well, question answer 60 is very explicit. How are you right before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. 
or Christ Jesus, I believe our translation says. Uh, same uh, implication. But the requirement for us to be righteous is we have to take hold of Christ by faith. And so when, when we hear this, you know, one of the things that the Roman Catholics brought against reformers, they said, well, this is just easy believism. You just believe this doctrine, then you're saved, and you don't really have any consequence. But the catechism lays out the issues that are going on. Because it's not some static thing that you just have faith and you just kind of meander through life with your eyes closed and, and somehow it all works out. But I love how question answer 60 addresses, even though my conscience accuses me. Then right here we, we understand that within ourselves we're conscious of our guilt, we're conscious of our sin. And again, how, where do we start with this? We start with knowing this promise. We are made right in Christ. Uh, we need to understand, as the Catechism reminds us, we haven't sinned against one command, but all the commands. Catechism reminds us, still inclined to all evil. I mean, this is not painting a pretty picture of the human condition. And so it, it is a call to humility and understanding, wait a minute, you know, this Christian life, even as I'm declared righteous, I'm still going to struggle to live out of gratitude to my Lord. I'm never going to do enough to dig myself out of this hole that I am in. And so obviously we, we need to start with something else. How do I get out of this mess? And the Catechism says only by taking hold of Christ by faith. So notice now the true humility of this. Not by any merit of mine, sheer grace, you know, it goes on to say. It's pretty much driving home the reality. I don't deserve Christ. None of us deserve Christ. We're, we're not worthy of Christ. It's all by the grace of God. So yes, this is humbling, but it's also exalting. God has bestowed upon me his mercy. He has made me worthy. Uh, it's understanding that also it's only based on the completeness of Christ's work. And so this is really where the reformers differ from the Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholics will tell you we believe in grace, right? So... When you're baptized, you begin the initiation and, and the gracious process of eventually attaining justification. And our catechism here is teaching us you're never going to attain justification. No matter how long you live, if you're trying to do this by your own works, you're never going to do enough. And so we need Christ. That's what the catechism is saying. So right here, it's just beginning to focus right on that blessing, the blessing of justification. It's only in Christ you're going to be declared righteous. Only in Christ that your sins are going to be taken away. And they are definitively taken away. That's the assurance we have. So it's in Christ, by faith, as we're looking to him. And so we say, well then, what about Abraham? Well, if we skip down, as I mentioned, we're going to be skipping through uh, Romans 4. Going on, 4 verse 20 22, as he picked up in 4 verse 5, he made reference to Genesis 15. But here now, in 4 verse 22, again, he's picking up the implications of this. So, uh, remember for the Apostle Paul, a lot of times he can kind of think he's been distracted in his writing because he kind of drops an argument, goes over here, lays something else out, all of a sudden he comes back to the argument. And so it's not that the Apostle Paul uh, has some attention deficit disorder or something going on. He's, doing a, 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 he's prosecuting a case, 
and intending for us to see a bigger picture and then bringing us back and saying, now, here's the implication of all these things I'm laying out. And so you think about Abraham, we think about this counting to him as righteousness. So we're jumping to his conclusion as he's concluding this argument here. And he wants us to understand that God is the one who has counted to him and, and given to him and credited to him this righteousness, not just for Abraham, but for us alone. And we say, okay, well then, what is Abraham fundamentally believing in? What's the rabbit trail that the Apostle Paul has gone on? Well, prior to this, the Apostle Paul has mentioned Abraham, the, the covenant that the Lord made with him. Abraham, saved by grace, jumps into Isaac, and now all of a sudden he jumps back here. And you say, well, how does this all fit together? Well, the Apostle Paul is building this, this brilliant argument up to the resurrection of Christ. Because he wants us to think in terms of Abraham and Sarah, 100 years old. I, mean, I remember my dad's, at their wedding anniversary of 50 years, my dad said, yeah, we're going to try for another kid, which all of us laughed, right? And there's a reason for that. Because you reach a certain age, you do not expect to have more children. And clearly, Abraham and Sarah are at that age. That's a funny comment. I mean, come on, I'm going to have a child at 100 years old. All these years, you couldn't give me a kid. Now at 100 years old, when I'm worn out and tired, I got to deal with a little kid. You know, you can understand sort of the humor of this. And so Abraham understands, wait a minute, this isn't possible. I'm as good as dead. Sarah's as good as dead. And so how is this child going to come about? But nevertheless, what does Abraham do? Now, Genesis 16, there's a failure, a moral failure. Scripture's clear about this. But from Genesis 17 to 22, you really have Abraham living in light of this promise. And that's the point that the Apostle Paul's making. What is Abraham looking to? Now, we could say literally to the child Isaac. That's literally what he's looking to. But the Apostle Paul's emphasizing as good as dead. So the implication here is that as Abraham thinks about this promise, thinks about the implication of his age, thinks about his death, he understands that there's something beyond death. Because verses 18 and 19 of chapter 4 tell us about um, this promise of his offspring being the father of a multitude of nations. I mean, really think about how hilarious that is. A guy 100 years old hasn't had any children and the Lord says, you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations and names him a father of a multitude of nations, which, you know, you go around telling people this and you're looking for the family and you're saying, yeah, I don't have a son yet. You know, it's, it's hilarious and you're seeing how the Lord is bringing out his humor. But Abraham is not laughing at this in a cynical way, which is what Isaac means, laughter. First time, Sarah, Abraham laugh at this. Second time, it's laughter of joy. Laughter of comfort is the intention of the text. And so Abraham is ordering and living his life in light of this coming child. But it's not just the child. It's understanding that life comes from death. So Abraham is looking forward to a resurrection. That's what he sees playing out with the birth of Isaac. It's not just that the Lord can overcome old age. He certainly can. We, we can be confident of that. But it's more than that. The Lord can bring life from death. 
And so Abraham understands that the Lord, because the promise is guaranteed in him, because the Lord will bring Abraham to a place of rest, because the Lord will bring Abraham to a place of righteousness through this child and through a resurrection, Abraham orders his life, no longer being ashamed of his name Abraham, but knowing that he truly will be the father of a multitude. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, this promise that Abraham has is more than just for Abraham, as now we skip down to verse 23. So Paul does a rabbit trail, we walk through it. Now he's saying, listen, Abraham didn't just believe this for himself, it's also for us. It's for those beyond him. And so when we look back to Abraham, we, we have a rich privilege. I mean, we really do. Because we can survey covenant history. Abraham has an assertion of God. So again, I, I know we can think, well, he had the vision. He saw the covenant. Um, he saw, heard the angel of the Lord. But we have the written record and the precedent of the assertion God has made, the fulfillment of the promise, the exodus, the history of Israel, the exile returning from exile. So right there, we, we have a great chunk of seeing the Lord's faithfulness to his people. And we also have the advent of Christ, his entrance into history, his resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul is inviting us to say, well, think about Abraham. He only had the promise. And he knew he was as good as dead, but God can bring life from death. That's his assurance. That's his confidence. And Abraham knows that as the Lord brings life from death, Abraham is not left in a place of death. That's the, the reminder, the assurance of this reality. He's looking to life. He looked forward to a resurrection. So the Apostle Paul is here setting the groundwork for us, telling us, giving us this assurance in verse 24. So the same promise comes to you in Christ Jesus. As you believe in Christ, as you take hold of Christ by faith, you can be assured that the, the blessings of Christ, the distinct blessings of Christ, are your blessings. Christ has overcome death, overcome greater than, than just barrenness, because Abraham sees a problem of the common curse, what death really means, estrangement from God as a consequence of sin. Death meaning true experiential hell of experiencing the wrath of God. That's what needs to be taken away, not the barrenness of Sarah, not the infertility of Abraham, but he sees a reality of how the Lord has to overcome this greater problem of sin, the greater problem, the common curse, the greater problem of condemnation, and that's only going to be overcome by a resurrection of death moving to resurrection. And so Abraham then is taking hold by faith the very promise of God that the resurrection event will transpire. And as there is a resurrection, death will not be the end of the story for humanity. The common curse, condemnation will be overcome. And so now we, we've talked about faith. We've talked about uh, how we are only righteous by faith, and this is how we, we claim this life. But what do we take hold of? Because the catechism wants us to understand and drive home the reality of this faith. Because we can say, well, maybe it's because my faith is so strong that I'm one who's worthy. 
that, that my faith is a quality of, of the life that I have. And because I have such a strong faith, I have such a strong redemption in the Lord. The Catechism wants us to understand it's not about your faith. In the sense that your quality of faith or believing and believing is what makes you worthy. And this is a great comfort because we can struggle and we can have highs and lows in our Christian life and, and we can wonder, you know, if we backslide, is God still with me? Uh, if we're high in a mountain, we might think highly of ourselves and then the Lord might knock us down a few steps to humble us. But the reality is we might think, well, how do I know that my faith is of a good enough quality that I'm really going to enter into the righteousness of Christ and truly have it. Well, this is where the Catechism wants us to understand it's not about the quality or the strength or the superiority of your faith. It's about a faith that reaches into Christ Jesus. That as you take hold of Christ and you really believe that Christ is a Redeemer who has overcome sin, he's been raised for, for life, he's been raised up, and as he's been raised up and we take hold of Christ by faith, doesn't matter if we have a Jewish nationality and we can claim this long genealogy or if we're a fresh convert in Christ like the thief on the cross. As long as we believe in the one Christ, we have entrance into heaven itself. So it's not belief in belief. It's not faith in faith. It is a faith that has to reach into Christ and take hold of him. It is by this means that we have the righteousness of Christ. And of course, the catechism is going to go on and speak of living out of gratitude. So if somebody is saying, well, this is easy believism, I would challenge the person saying, no, we're focusing on one aspect and one benefit of Christ that the catechism wants us to have clear. We understand we are righteous only because of the merits and work of Christ Jesus. We do not add to these. As we take hold of Christ by faith, we are those who have the blessings of Christ. So going back then to Abraham, and we think about Abraham, because clearly he doesn't have faith in faith. He's looking to a resurrection. Again, we think resurrection, consummation, glorification, uh, shedding all of our sin, right? And, and that's true, so I'm not uh, deprecating that or putting that down. That's true, and, and that's a blessing, and, and we... We need to look forward to that. But we need to understand that the graciousness of God is greater than just glorification. And again, I, I, I get so concerned in saying that. I don't want to like minimize glorification because that's quite a remarkable thing that God will bring us to glory. But I think so often we can think, well, right now I have nothing and I just want glorification. And that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing, saying don't fall into that mindset of thinking, well, Christ's resurrection just benefits me then, at the end of history, way, way in the future. Paul's saying, no, right now, the resurrection of Christ benefits us. And how do we know that? Well, first, we have the precedent of Abraham, as we talked about. He believes that God can overcome death. So he, he sees a problem as bigger than barrenness, understands there needs to be a resurrection, right? I mean, that's what Paul has laid out. But notice the conclusion here of this resurrection that he tells us in verse 25 who this Christ Jesus is. Yes, he's a fulfillment of the promise, the ultimate realization of what Isaac pointed to, 
Isaac is a projection, is a model, prototype, as we've talked about in Hebrews. Not the true redeemer, merely just a reminder of the promise of God unfolding. But notice who Christ Jesus is in verse 25. He's the one who is raised. But notice that he's not just raised. Paul wants us to understand more of this. Because this is passive. He's delivered. So this tells us that while Christ is offered, and as he's consciously offering up himself, Christ passively hands himself over to that. I mean, think about this. This is the second person of the Trinity who has taken on flesh. And he's carried off by the orders of a high priest, betrayed by Judas, by soldiers that he can merely give a command and wipe off the face of the earth. I mean, it's, it's nothing for Christ to eliminate these people. And so we understand the passiveness of this. He actively obeys. He's delivered over, as Paul says. He, he's handed over, freely goes. Doesn't put up a fight. Could have called his angels, as he says. If he wanted to fight, he says to Pilate, I could have my angels in heaven fighting for me if that was a plan. That's not the plan. It's to be delivered. Christ is conscious of this. But notice why he's delivered. Because it's important to understand it's not because Christ has failed his father. He's delivered like Isaac is delivered. Hasn't directly done anything to deserve this uh, handed over. Of course, Isaac, born under the common curse, all those things. This is why he couldn't be the ultimate sacrifice and why he's delivered. It's a test to Abraham. Christ is not delivered from the cross. And he's not delivered because he has failed. He's passively handed over for our sins. So we are the ones who have sinned. We are the ones who deserve death. We are the ones who are in the serious predicament that Abraham understands. It's not barrenness. We're dead. We, we can't have a child. How are you going to bring life from death? Only God can bring life from death. And that's the problem. We're not going to dig ourselves out of this. This is what Paul's driving home. That it was Abraham justified by works. Well, then he can come into God's presence and say, you owe me my wage. He wasn't, was he? Apostle Paul is saying Abraham's looking to this same event. He sees a, a, a fulfillment of it, a, a type of it in Isaac, but he knows that's not the reality of it. So Christ is delivered over for our trespasses. He's raised. This, too, is passive. It means that the Father has raised Christ from the dead. Now, there's something really profound and unique here. Because in other places, Paul speaks of Christ being vindicated, 1 Timothy 3.16, vindicated from the dead. Now, when he says that, it's because Christ has lived a perfect life, has vindicated his resurrection. Um, I, I believe it's Bovink who puts it so well. Then you have the earthly courts condemning Christ, the heavenly courts overturn that sentence. So the resurrection is a justification. It's vindicating Christ. Not that he sinned, but it's the vindication that, yes, he has earned this. But notice that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand the application of this. Jew, Gentile alike, Abraham also. It's not because of what they have done. It's because Christ has been raised. And as he has been raised, he's overcome death, he's overcome our trespasses, he's overcome our sins. This is why the resurrection of Christ is so essential. If Christ is still in the grave, we are still in our sins. 
That's not my theology. That's the Apostle Paul right here, Romans 4, verse 25. But as Christ has been raised from the dead, we have the assurance that the heavenly courtroom has overturned the sentence of death. The legality that stands in our way of drawing near to God has been overturned definitively. And we have a definitive event, the resurrection of Christ. This is why we need to take hold of the person of Christ. It's not faith in faith. It's not just believing. It's not just hoping that things work out. It's that as we take hold of Christ by faith, we know definitively that all the legal debts have been removed from us because Christ has been raised from the dead. So then, in terms of where he began, how do we know the certainty that we will have life? How do we know that when Christ comes again, we will pass into the heavenly glory? How do we know that's ours? We know that because Christ has been raised. We know that because Abraham was looking to the same promise. Abraham's not looking to a different Christ, not looking to a different reality. We ultimately know that as we take hold of Christ by faith, that right now we have a declaration of pardon, a legal overturning of a sentence of condemnation as he's going to develop in Romans 5. But the overturning of that legal condemnation, we can be assured has been overturned because Christ has been raised from the dead. We have life in him. So let us then continue as we walk under the sun this sign of glory, taking hold of Christ by faith. Let us live our lives in the confidence that it is only in Christ that we will be declared righteous. It is only in Christ that we are declared righteous. It is only as we walk in Christ that we truly have life. Let us then continue to walk out of gratitude, saying amen to the promises of God, seeking to order our lives in light of his redemptive promises as our life is secured in our Redeemer. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. <music>